Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shivaglani. Many of the physicians we've interviewed over the past two and a half years have interesting side gigs as entrepreneurs or public policy experts. But our guest today has, I think, the most interesting and visible side gig of all. Dr. Lisa Sanders is an associate professor at Yale School of Medicine in primary care internal medicine, but also finds time to write the popular diagnosis column for the New York Times Magazine, which was the basis for a Netflix documentary series, the Fox TV series House MD, and several books she has authored. Her most recent is a collection of her columns titled Diagnosis, Solving the Most Baffling Medical Mysteries. Dr. Sanders also maintains a clinical practice and is medical director of the Long COVID Clinic at Yale New Haven Health. And I first met Dr. Sanders several years ago when we were just starting Osmosis, when we had her on our blog at the time, Leaders in Medical Education. So I'm really looking forward to catching up with her and hearing all of the great things she's been up to since then. So Dr. Sanders, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. For our audience who, who probably has read your column because they're obviously very interested in pursuing careers in medicine, but may not know your career journey, do you mind giving us a, a little bit of a window into the kind of non-traditional route you took to become a physician? <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Well, I when I graduated from college, I had no thought at all of becoming a doctor. I thought maybe I would go to New York and maybe be a writer or maybe be an editor. Um, I didn't do either. I ended up in television as a television producer for uh, a morning news show. And that's when I first saw medicine in a real way. I mean, divorced from the stressed out pre-meds that I went to college with. And I thought it was fascinating. Um, I covered medicine with a, a variety of correspondence for several years. And then I thought, maybe I could go to medical school myself. And so I had to do all my pre-meds because by then, you know, whatever science courses I'd taken were so out of date uh, and I hadn't taken all of them. So I took the, I went to Columbia, which has a very robust post-bac pre-med program and then uh, applied to medical school. And I got into Yale as one of, Yale always accepts a hundred medical students and they sort of reserve 10 spots in every class for the weirdos. So I was one of the weirdos. Um, you know, I had many weirdo friends. Uh, you know, one of my colleagues was a professional baseball player and another one was from Solomon Brothers and another one was an architect. So another one was a, had a PhD in physical chemistry, whatever that is. And medicine just seemed like a great fit. I must say, and I've loved it pretty much ever since we got out of the classroom and started going to the wars. The classroom was hard, sitting still for eight hours while mostly, you know, old white men droned on was not easy. <laughs> but once I got to the patient part, it was like, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I know um, I know a bit of that backstory being non-traditional and Yale being a great place for people with non-traditional backgrounds. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that's why you've stayed there uh, all this time, plus obviously proximity to New York. But um, you started med school at, I think, 36. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Late uh, bloomer. 
or early midlife crisis, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> well, I love this about, you know, many of the guests we've had have had zigzag careers. For example, one physician spent uh, the first few years of his career as a monk uh, at a monastery. Uh, and oh, wow. so this, this non-traditional aspect is really interesting. And I, as you know, I did two years of med school, took time off to start osmosis, and I'm going to go back to med school next year as a 34-year-old. Uh, so uh, kind of the non-traditional path has been uh, interesting. I'd love to pick your brain at some point about advice you have. And actually here, what advice do you have for people like that? Say they're in their 30s or 40s or 50s, and they're like, maybe I should be a doctor. What were like the hardest or uh, maybe best piece of advice you, you got for being non-traditional like that? You know, you want to do what you want to do. So do it. I mean, I have to say there have been so many older students and non-traditional students in these last couple of decades that I don't even feel like it's it's an oddity to be odd anymore. <laughs> um, so, you know, I would say that the hardest thing is the lack of sleep, mostly during residency. Um, during medical school, you know, I have to say, the only thing I would have done differently uh, in medical school is that when people sent me home at night, because I was pregnant during a lot of my clinical years, and so people would go, oh, you should go home. I'm sorry that I did that, you know, because the middle of the night I found as a resident is where so many interesting conversations happen that I felt like um, going home early, I missed out on a lot of that. The medicine is good. But the medicine happens all the time. The surgery happens all the time. But the conversations, those are different. They really happen in the middle of the night. With patients, with doctors, with my colleagues, I'm sorry I missed out on that. Well, that's a very interesting uh, thing to say um, and certainly something I'll take into mind when I, when I go back to the wards. Now, you know, obviously you started your career as a journalist. You went and finished med school. What made you decide to basically become such an expert and and uh, in diagnosis and the diagnostic odyssey because there's so many things you could have differentiated into as a clinician but uh, i know in your in your netflix documentary you talk about how initially approaching medicine you thought it was like the multiplication tables kind of you know you put in an input you get an output but it's more like sherlock holmes where you get 12 potential outputs and you have to narrow it down and it's more of an art in that way than just a science so what got you so fascinated in clinical uh, decision making and diagnosis you know, I had covered medicine for, you know, I don't know, maybe 10 years. And so I thought I understood how medicine worked. And when I got to the first day of my medicine, internal medicine clerkship, which was about halfway through my clerkships, on the first day, I went to resident report. And there, if you've ever been to resident report, you know, they usually present a patient from the time they come into the door until a diagnosis is reached. And they tell it that way. I'd never heard a story told that way before. You know, usually a diagnosis is the second thing you know, um, or maybe even the first thing you know about the patient. You might not even know how they presented. You might just know what their diagnosis was. Uh, all the textbooks were, at the time, organized that way by diagnosis. And so this whole thing of walking through it the way a doctor walks through it, I thought it was amazing. I'd never seen that before. And so I, I thought that was really exciting and really exciting things, things that are intellectually really exciting. They just don't come along that often. 
you know, things that really make you go, wow, it just don't happen that often. So when I was in this class or in this meeting, I just was, my mind was blown. I still remember the case that was presented um, because I just never seen information presented that way before. So when my, when a friend or an acquaintance, really a friend of my husband's, uh, got a job at the New York Times and called me to say, you know, me and, you know, every other doctor he knew, um, what can doctors write? I said, you know, there's this story and I'd never seen it before. You've never seen it before. And he's a friend of mine now, but he was like, huh? Oh, that is so interesting in the way that you can tell. He does not think that it is interesting at all. So I said, no, 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 this is really how doctors talk to each other. It's not how they talk to their patients. It's how they talk to each other. This is the, this is the water cooler conversation that people have in the hallways. Uh, and I sent him, you know, New England Journal, you know, CPCs and, you know, Mayo Clinic proceedings. They have these sort of mystery, you know, having a doctor think through a diagnosis. He was like, oh, that's really so very interesting. And then he left the Times to go write a book and his replacement thought it was interesting. And that was how that's. And so they they actually hired a real doctor writer, you know, somebody who was. I don't know who it was. And my friend claims that he doesn't know what, who it was, it, which might even be true. Uh, but that didn't work out. And so um, so this other editor called me and said, um, look, this is not really working out. So do you want to take a shot at it? Because otherwise we're going to trash the idea. And I said, absolutely. And my husband held my hand because, of course, you know, I hadn't written anything for a really long time. Never written anything for publications since I wrote for The Flat Hat at William & Mary. So uh, my husband, who is a wonderful writer and a fantastic editor, um, helped me through my first few columns. And, uh, and, I've, and uh, they forgot to tell me to stop. So I haven't. That's awesome. That's uh, very, very much like a Tom Brady story where he was... The second string uh and luckily for him and for the patriots at the time the first string got injured and and he he subbed in so i feel like we're all benefiting from the fact that whoever <laughs> that original physician writer didn't work out for whatever reason so you've obviously had quite an impact with the diagnosis column and i mentioned some of the the popular culture netflix and house that it influenced i'm curious you know there was a a change when you made the netflix documentary where you you know you went from writing about solved cases in the diagnosis to then using crowdsourcing uh to get um to get these diagnoses and i think the first episode of your documentary talked about this person in nevada a nurse in nevada angel parker whose diagnosis came from a metabolic testing lab in turin italy of all places um and there's many examples of that so can you tell us a bit about the crowdsourcing uh, aspect, is that still being used, uh, whether it's diagnosis column or at scale? And then we're going to transition that into the new form of crowdsourcing, which is AI. Uh, and I would love to get your thoughts on how AI has and is influencing diagnostic, uh, the diagnostic odyssey. To be honest, I'm not sure that crowdsourcing added a lot. The reason I thought it would be useful and, and the way that it was useful was that it made sure that we didn't leave out 
anything that should be considered. You know, I mean, the number one reason that a diagnostic diagnosis is missed is because the doctor never thought of it. So if we could just get that list to a reasonable, you know, some, that, something that included the reasonable possibilities, I thought that would help make a diagnosis. I have to say that with Angel Parker's disorder, I'm not sure we really needed the crowd, you know, because there's only like, she had this very distinctive symptom. And by the way, she wasn't a nurse at the time, because if she was a nurse, she might've, she might've had the tools to figure this out herself. But there's only like a handful of diseases that will give you Coca-Cola colored urine. I mean, it just isn't that, it's just, it's just extremely rare. And so, you know, once you think about those few diagnoses, you know, you've, you've got it. Um, when we crowdsourced for Angel, of course, we got those diagnoses plus, you know, two dozen more. I mean, we've got 50 or 60 diagnostic possibilities. And, you know, a lot of them came from people who were Googling. A lot of them came from people who had friends who had, you know, problems uh, with dark urine. Um, but Coca-Cola colored urine, that's pretty rare. But I think that it was useful in other ways. I mean, first of all, it proved something that I've always thought or that I've thought since I started writing about diagnosis, which is that doctors are not the only people who can make a diagnosis. People can think about their own illnesses. Nurses can make diagnoses. Physical therapists can make diagnoses. Veterinarians can make diagnoses. I have to say, I wrote a column for a while that was really the basis of the diagnosis television show called Think Like a Doctor, where I would present a solved case um, and challenge the readers uh, to figure out the diagnosis. I would just stop right after the data was available for them to make a diagnosis or for a diagnosis to be made and uh, ask people, what do you think it is? And then the next day I would say what it was. And towards the end of that column, I cut it off after six years just because it was too much work. <laughs> you know, and, and it was fun, but it was a lot of work. But the people who, the last like three or four cases were solved by this couple of veterinarians and it was just, it was like, what? But they were incredible. They were students. Um, and so they had a lot more time, <laughs> but, but it was amazing. So lots of people can make a diagnosis. And that was one of the reasons I wrote my Think Like a Doctor column. And it certainly proved that. And I think we also saw that in the diagnosis show is that lots of people who have different ways of knowing medicine can do this difficult thing, make a diagnosis. I love that. And and again, it's, it speaks to kind of our vision, which is everyone who cares for someone will learn about osmosis because I think, you know, almost like the 95 theses, you don't necessarily need the priest to communicate to God. You don't need the doctor or the neurosurgeon neurologist to communicate to, you know, you about your diagnosis. If you are an engaged patient and you have the right tools and motivation, you can potentially get pretty far. Let's talk about AI. I mean, clinical... Before you yeah, keep go going, I want to say one thing, you know, if you talk to any patient who has an unusual disease, they will tell you, and it will be true that they are the experts. You know, these their doctors often have never seen what they have. And so they're the ones who are the source of information, or at least 
the stimulus to look up the information to find out what to do. So not only are doctors not the only ones who are needed to make a, a, a diagnosis, treatment as well can come from the patients who are or can be the real experts. So I'm sorry, you were going to ask me about no, AI. And, and they have deep skin in the game, obviously, which is uh, which is important. So before AI, I will mention, you know, one of the reasons I re reached out to you again after a couple of years was our big focus in recent weeks on the podcast has been rare diseases because we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of the Orphan Drug Act. And the question is, what does the next 10 years look like in terms of solving these 7,000 plus rare diseases with the diagnostic odyssey, as you know, is four to nine years. Um, and crowdsourcing is one, but I just don't think there's a, there's, there won't be enough time for a clinician to learn about all these rare diseases. And so that's actually a good transition into clinical decision support and AI. You know, what are you seeing? I'm sure there's many companies, many groups that have approached you about your work and saying, hey, can you look at our uh, decision trees? Uh, we're recording this episode a month after OpenAI came up with this tool called ChatGPT, which you may have heard of. It's blowing up the tech circles and Twitter. Uh, what are your reflections on AI? Do you think diagnos diagnosis will go from being an art to truly being a science in the next 5, 10, 15 years? No. And I don't think AI will solve that problem. I think I think that, you know, I think it's inevitable that we will get to a uh, Star Trek, you know, uh, what was that thing called? Uh, tricorder, Tri yeah. Tricorder, uh, where something will be able to look into the body and actually see what's wrong. But, you know, AI doesn't have the ability to get information other than through what we already have. It's true that they can organize it better, but fundamentally, and, and that can be useful, especially with tests. You know, maybe that will be useful. It might remind you of things that you had forgotten about. And so I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be important, but it won't solve, it won't make this a science. It's because bodies are too variable. Symptoms are very variable. I'm just not sure we're going to get to a science anytime soon because people are so different. The way they tell their stories is different. The way they interpret symptoms is different. If, as we think, diagnosis is based in large part on history, that's always going to be this kind of squirrely thing that I think is going to be difficult to to take into consideration as a as a computer. But maybe I could be wrong. Maybe AI will get to be incredible. But I think that what they can do is look at patterns of things and recognize something that's uh, that might not even be known or not, might not have been seen by other people or by people. For example, I understand that um, in looking at retinal imaging, AI came up with a new observation of a disease, you know, that hadn't been identified previously. It was an AI diagnosis. And, you know, that's amazing. So maybe that will happen. But I think as long as you're dependent on doctors eliciting the history, the tests that they order are determined by the doctors, then I think the diagnosis is still going to be tough. I, I agree. And, and I think one of the limitations of all AI systems, not just in medicine, is 
is the data sets and the training behind the data sets. There's obviously a lot of talk about the ethics and biases, depending on what the data sets are for clinical trials. And as they say, garbage in, garbage out, which is why having a, a caregiver, a clinician who can uh, elicit an accurate diagno- uh, history, physical, you know, lab results matter. Obviously, with companies like Theranos uh, producing inaccurate lab results, that that clearly was garbage in, garbage out. Um, so I think I think that's a you know wise thing you just shared about the need for a clinician. They may change what we do as clinicians, but uh, but that's a good thing. I think that is a good thing, and I think that it will eventually require doctors to recognize the importance of getting a good history, which requires good people skills. I'm sure that you looked around in your medical school class and noticed that not everybody there was charismatic. (laughs) You know, not everybody there was comfortable talking to people. Not everybody there helped people feel relaxed enough to share. This turns out to be an extremely important characteristic or quality in doctors that we don't look for in any way, I think. Uh, You know, even in medical school, I did an interview for Yale. It's true. And I guess most medical schools now have interviews, but I'm not sure what their the purpose of them is. I didn't, I, you know, if you have somebody awkward and a poor communicator interviewing you, how are they going to know? <laughs> how are they going to know if you have these people skills or not? So, uh, you know, I think that the great thing about helping with the memory load, which I think AI can help us with, um, will be that we can focus on some of the qualities that really make a difference in getting the right diagnosis. Yeah, that's well said. And I, I agree. It'll be interesting now, 10 years later, when I go back to med school, the maturity I think I've developed over the past several years running a company and scaling it is incomparable to when I was a 21-year-old, didn't know anything uh, going to med school. And I think business schools, I, I did business school in between. Business schools, I think, have a better approach where you can't just do the theoretical business school. You've got to spend a couple of years in the workforce because topics like culture and you know managing people, these are, you know, in textbooks or case studies don't, you know, are ill-informed versus you need direct experience. Uh, and maybe that's what, why non-traditional students like yourself not only may stick around medicine longer because they've matured more as a person, so they're making that decision knowing more about themselves, but then they hopefully will have developed more of those soft skills that ultimately are the more important skills or will be over the next couple of decades, I think. I think they've always been important, but I think they're, they're going to be more even more important. So... Well, I'm aware of your time. I wanted to get into what you're doing now, uh, the long COVID clinic we mentioned. Can you talk to us a bit about that and any other things that are top of mind for you? Because it's been a couple of years since since we spoke. We'd love to catch our audience up. Well, you know, long COVID clinic doesn't, I don't start that until I finished with my current job, which goes to the end of this year. So um, I've just been doing a lot of thinking and reading about long COVID. And what amazes me, to be honest, is how much skepticism there is about whether this is a real diagnosis. You know, uh, a million people get sick and some large portion of those people have these symptoms that linger on for months, sometimes years. I'm just not sure this is mass hysteria. You know, because, you know, the, the, the circumstances that 
allow or encourage mass hysteria are very different from what we're seeing uh, with long COVID. Moreover, I mean, there are people who actually, you know, there, you know, there's there's some physiology involved, things that can be measured. You know, one of the first things we heard about long COVID is, you know, um, people feel sick, but all the tests are normal. That's because the right tests either weren't available or weren't considered. Um, and many of these symptoms, we do have a hard time measuring. How do you measure brain fog? How do you how do you measure you know some of the other symptoms that uh, raise a lot of skepticism? Um, on the other hand, there are things that are very easily measured, um, like uh, many patients who have long COVID have these fluctuations in their blood pressure and heart rate that can be measured if you do it right. So, I mean, I think that for me, I think the big surprise for me was how much skepticism there is uh, surrounding this diagnosis. And let me just say, I'm not somebody who, I don't, I don't go for all the trendy diseases. I never bought into chronic Lyme there is post-Lyme, but that's different than chronic Lyme, where apparently you don't even have to have Lyme to get chronic Lyme. So that's been my biggest surprise so far. But I'm excited to get started, and I'm excited to see what I can bring to this. There are already super specialists at Yale who are seeing these patients already. I mean, people who have you know, palpitations or these variations in their heart rate or chest pain or all the kinds of things that they have are calling cardiologists and pulmonologists and neurologists and psychiatrists. They're already doing that. It's not like uh, it's not like that doesn't exist. It's just that I will be somebody who can help them. My team will be able to try to identify what's really going on and direct them in a uh, I hope, a more effective trajectory. So I'm very excited about getting started. I start January 2nd, so we, we can talk after that. <laughs> Definitely. And I'll, I'll be very excited to hear how that happens. And that's a, that's another topic that why I think there are limitations to AI, because there are diseases or our understanding of diseases that, that are just being shaped in real time. Like very few people knew what a coronavirus was five years ago, and now everyone, everybody seems to. Long COVID similarly. So uh, it's unlikely that a, a system that needs training, like an AI, will be able to help with these kind of nascent diseases. So it'll be exciting to watch your trajectory there. Two other questions, and then uh, we'll let you go for the day. You know, as you know, we're a teaching company. We like to fill in knowledge gaps. If you could snap your fingers and teach any group of people, clinicians, patients, public, et cetera, any topic, what would it be and why? I think that... Uh... Patients do not understand that how little we actually know in medicine. I, I'm not sure doctors understand this either, but it was very early in my career as a medical student. I came home to my husband and I said, you know, I think if people had a better understanding of how little we actually know, they take a lot better care of themselves because I think that there's an assumption that that if we get sick, somebody, or if we get injured, somebody can fix us. I'm just not sure that people understand that that is 
not always the case. In fact, maybe even mostly not the case. Um, so I think people need to appreciate how little we know about this magnificent, mysterious body we live in, in this mysterious and incredibly dirty world we live in. So that I, would be what I would want people to think about, both doctors yeah, and no, patients. That's great. That's great advice. We've never heard that in, in our episodes. And it is the moral hazard, as you suggest, where, you know, obviously people, when, when seat, belt, seat belts came out, people started driving their cars faster and mortality rates didn't go, or I think injury rates didn't go down as quickly. Mortality rates did, but it's the moral hazard where it's like, oh, some surgeon will be able to fix me for my you know, obesity or whatever diseases and uh, things are suffering from. Lastly, obviously our audience has grown quite a bit since last we spoke. I think when we had you on the blog, we had maybe 10,000, 50,000 people. Now we have uh, a couple of million. Uh, wow. And so for Congratulations. Yeah. That is so fantastic. Wow. Wonderful. Thank you. Ho hopefully someday we'll get as big as the, the times column you have, where I'm sure you have hundreds of millions. Uh, but what, what advice would you give to them uh, about meeting the challenges of the current moment in healthcare or in society and approaching their careers? Be open. You know, uh, the world is a lot more complicated than medicine makes room for. Uh, medicine is a lot more complicated than medicine makes room for. And be prepared for all the uncertainty. You know, the way we are trained, right up until the moment you step into the wards, is in an environment of certainty. We're asked a question. There is a right answer. It is knowable and immediately knowable. Um, once you get away from the classroom, that kind of certainty is, a, is an illusion. I mean, certainly there are people who have things. For example, a history. Somebody comes to you with the history of this, that, and the other disease. Maybe they have those diseases, but maybe not. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty, and you just have to be willing to accept that and work with that and be flexible in what you think. Because I think that's the key to being a good doctor is being flexible, allowing yourself to see things as they are and being open for what you don't know. I think that's great advice, uh, not just for physicians, clinicians, but but people in general is uh, questioning their knowledge and, and updating their knowledge over time. Um, we may have published this paper after we last spoke. I don't know if I mentioned it to you, but you know, medicine, whether it's MCAT or USMLE, the, the way we train doctors, there is a right answer or a best answer and it's multiple choice, which is not how patients present, obviously. And so one thing we did early on, and we published this paper in Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, was we asked for confidence before you get the answer. So when you say A, B, C, D, or E, you have to rate your confidence either, uh, no clue, I'm feeling lucky, or I'm sure. And we found that male medical students and female medical students had very different confidences, uh, same accuracy, but male medical students tended to be overconfident, uh, which could obviously lead to diagnostic error. Female medical students you know, were less confident, which again could lead to defensive medicine, not, not high value medicine. So it was a pretty interesting result. And I think that self-awareness that you've encouraged our audience to get, to pick up is, is something that I hope they take, take seriously. I have a question. When you looked at that, did you see where people 
uncertain about the right things? Like, were they more likely to be uncertain about the things that they got wrong or not? You know, what surprised me is I can't remember who said it. It's not what he doesn't know. It's what he does know that's wrong that worries me. You know, is that did you find that to be the case that people were very confident and still wrong? Yeah, it's, it's good, really good. And that's what Mark Twain said that I think it's uh, it's not the things I uh, it's the things that I'm sure of that just aren't right that get you into trouble. Um, yes, uh, fortunately, there was high calibration and there was actually cultural differences, too, in addition to gender differences as far as how people approach that confidence. And we know that we know this to be true from, you know, I think Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book about aviation in South Korea versus in the U.S., where confidence and hierarchy play a role in this, too. So fascinating. Anything else you want to leave our audience with before we let you go? I know we've already taken you 10 minutes over what we had allocated, but uh, any other parting words? No. What are you going to go into? Yeah, you know, it, your last two years of uh, medical school, do you have do you have any thoughts now that you've you've been Perry Medicine this whole time? What are you what are you thinking that you might do your residency in? It's a really good question. Part of what influenced me to go back to, to Hopkins specifically and finish med school there is I'm very excited by uh, consciousness and, and the brain. So like neuroengineering, neurology, neurosurgery. My mentor was a neurosurgeon. It's unlikely I'll do that long of a residency though, to be to be honest. And then Mark. also Hopkins. <laughs> yeah. Hopkins, along with Yale, have great centers for psychedelic studies. And so with regards to consciousness and mental health, very excited about the the role that psychedelics can play in helping people become more self-aware and and maybe just become better better humans as a as a whole. Wow, fascinating. Well, do stay in touch. I want to see your papers that you write. I'm sure they'll be interesting. <laughs> I definitely will, Dr. Sanders. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and more importantly for the work that you've done over your career to help individual patients, but then just help help make healthcare and the way we we have diagnoses and make diagnoses more accessible to the to the general public. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. And with that, I'm Shivu Glani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to raise the line and strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.